Chapter Sixteen A of the Everyday Life of Abraham Lincoln. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Everyday Life of Abraham Lincoln by Francis Fisher Brown. Chapter Sixteen A Civil War, Uprising of the Nation, The President's First Call for Troops, Response of the Loyal North, The Riots in Baltimore, Loyalty of Stephen A. Douglas. Douglas's death, blockade of southern ports, additional war measures, Lincoln defines the policy of the government, his conciliatory course, his desire to save Kentucky. The Confederate attack upon Fort Sumter, a United States fort situated at the mouth of Charleston Harbor, South Carolina, April 12, 1861, was the signal that civil war had actually begun. Lincoln had thus far maintained a conciliatory policy toward the United States in rebellion, hoping to the last that good sense and reason prevailing over rash and violent impulses would induce them to resume their allegiance to the government. Their resort to arms and capture of forts and property of the United States decided the course of the administration, and on the 15th of April, forty-two days after his accession to the presidency, Lincoln issued a proclamation asking for the immediate enlistment of seventy-five thousand volunteers. Footnote. This first call for troops was supplemented a month later, May 16th, by a call for forty-two thousand thirty-four volunteers for three years, for twenty-two thousand one hundred fourteen officers and men for the regular army, and eighteen thousand seamen for the navy. End footnote and summoning Congress to convene in an extra session on the 4th of July. The call was sent forth in the following form. Proclamation by the President of the United States. Whereas the laws of the United States have been for some time past, and now are opposed, and the execution thereof obstructed in the states of South Carolina, Georgia, Alabama, Florida, Mississippi, Louisiana, and Texas, by combinations too powerful to be suppressed by the ordinary course of judicial proceedings, or by the powers vested in the marshals by law. Now, therefore, I, Abraham Lincoln, President of the United States, in virtue of the power in me vested by the Constitution and the laws, have thought fit to call forth, and thereby do call forth, the militia of the several states of the Union, to the aggregate number of seventy-five thousand in order to suppress said combinations and to cause the laws to be duly executed. The details of this object will be immediately communicated to the State authorities through the War Department. I appeal to all loyal citizens to favor, facilitate, and aid this effort to maintain the honor, the integrity, and existence of our National Union, and the perpetuity of popular government, and to redress wrongs already long enough endured. I deem it proper to say that the first service assigned to the forces hereby called forth will probably be to repossess the forts, places, and property which have been seized from the Union, and in every event the utmost care will be observed, consistently with the objects aforesaid, to avoid any devastation, any destruction of, or interference with, property, or any disturbance of peaceful citizens of any part of the country and I hereby command the persons composing the combinations aforesaid to disperse and retire peaceably to their respective abodes within twenty days from this date. 
deeming that the present condition of public affairs presents an extraordinary occasion i do hereby in virtue of the power in me vested by the constitution convene both houses of congress the senators and representatives are therefore summoned to assemble at their respective chambers at twelve o'clock noon on thursday the fourth day of july next then and there to consider and determine any measures as in their wisdom the public safety and interest may seem to demand in witness whereof i have hereunto set my hand and caused the seal of the united states to be affixed done at the city of washington this fifteenth day of april in the year of our lord one thousand eight hundred and sixty one and of the independence of the united states the eighty-fifth by the president abraham lincoln william h seward secretary of state the issue of this proclamation created the wildest enthusiasm throughout the north scarcely a voice was raised against it as it was seen to be a measure of absolute necessity and of self-defense on the part of the government every northern state says mr henry i raymond responded promptly to the president's demand and from private persons as well as by the legislatures men arms and money were offered in unstinted profusion and with the most zealous alacrity in support of the government massachusetts was first in the field and on the first day after the issue of the proclamation her sixth regiment completely equipped started from boston for the national capital two more regiments were also made ready and took their departure within forty-eight hours the sixth massachusetts regiment was attacked on its way to washington on the nineteenth of april by a mob in baltimore carrying a confederate flag and several of its members were killed or severely wounded this continues mr raymond inflamed to a still higher point the excitement which already pervaded the country the whole northern section of the union felt outraged that troops should be assailed and murdered on their way to protect the capital of the nation in maryland where the secession party was strong there was also great excitement and the governor of the state and the mayor of baltimore united in urging for prudential reasons that no more troops should be brought through that city in answer to the remonstrances of governor hicks and a committee from maryland who presented their petition in person lincoln intent on avoiding every cause of offence and with a forbearance that now seems incredible replied troops must be brought here but i make no point of bringing them through baltimore without any military knowledge myself of course i must leave details to general scott he hastily said this morning in the presence of these gentlemen march them around baltimore and not through it i sincerely hope the general on fuller reflection will consider this practical and proper and that you will not object to it by this a collision of the people of baltimore with the troops will be avoided unless they go out of their way to seek it i hope you will exert your influence to prevent this now and ever i shall do all in my power for peace consistently with the maintenance of the government one of the most encouraging incidents of this opening chapter of the war was the announcement that stephen a douglas the great leader of the democracy and the lifelong political opponent of lincoln had declared his purpose to stand by the government the effect of this action at this crisis was most salutary it ranged the northern democrats with the defenders of the union and gave lincoln a united north as the act of no other individual could have done from that time until his death douglas never faltered in his loyalty and stood by the government with a zeal and patriotism 
which were above all lower considerations of person or of party. On Sunday, the 14th of April, when Washington was thrilling with excitement over the fall of Fort Sumter, Douglas called on the President and after a brief conversation authorized a statement to be telegraphed throughout the country that he was fully prepared to sustain the President in the exercise of all his constitutional functions, to preserve the Union, maintain the government, and defend the Federal capital. A firm policy and prompt action were necessary. The capital was in danger, and must be defended at all hazards, and at any expense of men and money. Faithful to his pledge, Douglas immediately set out upon a tour through the Northwest, to strengthen, by his words and presence, the spirit of loyalty among the people. He made a series of eloquent speeches on his journey to Chicago, where he arrived worn and spent with the fatigue and excitement of his undertaking. It was the last and noblest service of his life. Illness ensued, and after a few weeks of suffering he passed away, June 3rd, at the age of forty-eight. His death was an irreparable loss, mourned by the President and the nation. The President's call for troops was succeeded on the 19th of April by a proclamation declaring a blockade of southern ports. The text of this document is historically important as definitely formulating the attitude and policy of the government. Whereas, an insurrection against the government of the United States has broken out in the states of South Carolina, Georgia, Alabama, Florida, Mississippi, Louisiana, and Texas and the laws of the United States for the collection of the revenue cannot be efficiently executed therein, conformably to that provision of the Constitution which requires duties to be uniform throughout the United States. And whereas a combination of persons engaged in such insurrection have threatened to grant pretended letters of mark to authorize the bearers thereof to commit assaults on the lives vessels, and property of good citizens of the country lawfully engaged in commerce on the high seas, and in waters of the United States. And whereas an executive proclamation has already been issued, requiring the persons engaged in these disorderly proceedings to desist therefrom, calling out a militia force for the purpose of repressing the same, and convening Congress in extraordinary session to deliberate and determine thereon, now, therefore, I, Abraham Lincoln, President of the United States, with a view to the same purposes before mentioned, and to the protection of the public peace, and the lives and property of quiet and orderly citizens pursuing their lawful occupations, until Congress shall have assembled and deliberated on the said unlawful proceedings, or until the same shall have ceased, have further deemed it advisable to set on foot a blockade of the ports within the United States aforesaid in pursuance of the laws of the United States, and of the laws of nations in such cases provided. For this purpose a competent force will be posted so as to prevent entrance and exit of vessels from the ports aforesaid. If, therefore, with a view to violate such blockade, a vessel shall approach or shall attempt to leave any of the said ports, she shall be duly warned by the commander of one of the blockading vessels, who shall endorse on her register the fact and date of such warning and if the same vessel shall again attempt to enter or leave the blockaded port, she will be captured and sent to the nearest convenient port, for such proceedings against her and her cargo as prize as may be deemed advisable. And I hereby proclaim and declare that if any person under the pretended authority of said states, or under any other pretense, 
shall molest a vessel of the United States, or the persons or cargo on board of her, such person will be held amenable to the laws of the United States for the prevention and punishment of piracy. By the President, Abraham Lincoln, William H. Seward, Secretary of State, Washington, April 19, 1861. On the 27th of April the President issued a proclamation by which the blockade of southern ports was extended to the ports of North Carolina and Virginia, and on the 16th of May, by another proclamation, the President directed the commander of the United States forces in Florida to permit no person to exercise any office or authority upon the islands of Key West, Tortugas, and Santa Rosa, which may be inconsistent with the laws and constitution of the United States authorizing him, at the same time, if he shall find it necessary, to suspend the writ of habeas corpus, and to remove from the vicinity of the United States fortresses all dangerous and suspected persons. The Virginia Convention, which passed the Ordinance of Secession, April 17th, having appointed a committee to wait upon the President, and respectfully ask him to communicate to this Convention the policy which the Federal Executive intends to pursue in regard to the Confederate States. Lincoln, in reply, thus clearly outlined the policy and purposes of the government. In answer, I have to say that having, at the beginning of my official term, expressed my intended policy as plainly as I was able, it is with deep regret and mortification that I now learn there is great and injurious uncertainty in the public mind as to what that policy is and what course I intend to pursue. Not having as yet seen occasion to change, it is now my purpose to pursue the course marked out in the inaugural address. I commend a careful consideration of the whole document as the best expression I can give to my purposes. As I then and therein said, I now repeat, the power confided in me will be used to hold, occupy, and possess property and places belonging to the government and to collect the duties and imposts. But beyond what is necessary for these objects there will be no invasion, no using of force against or among the people anywhere. By the words property and places belonging to the government, I chiefly allude to the military posts and property which were in possession of the government when it came into my hands. But if, as now appears to be true, in pursuit of a purpose to drive the United States authority from these places, an unprovoked assault has been made upon Fort Sumter, I shall hold myself at liberty to repossess, if I can, like places which had been seized before the government was devolved upon me. And in any event I shall, to the best of my ability, repel force by force. In case it proves true that Fort Sumter has been assaulted, as is reported, I shall perhaps cause the United States mails to be withdrawn from all the states which claim to have seceded believing that the commencement of actual war against the government justifies and possibly demands it. I scarcely need to say that I consider the military posts and property situated within the states which claim to have seceded, as yet belonging to the government of the United States as much as they did before the supposed secession. Whatever else I may do for the purpose, I shall not attempt to collect the duties and imposts by any armed invasion of any part of the country, not meaning by this, however, that I may not land a force deemed necessary to relieve a fort upon the border of the country. From the fact that I have quoted a part of the inaugural address, 
it must not be inferred that I repudiate any other part, the whole of which I reaffirm, except so far as what I may now say of the males may be regarded as a modification. Abraham Lincoln In the early period of Lincoln's administration he was hopeful that many serious phases of the threatened trouble might be averted, and that the better judgment of the citizens of the South might prevail. For more than a month after his inauguration, says Secretary Wells, President Lincoln indulged the hope, I may say, felt a strong confidence that Virginia would not secede, but would adhere to the Union, that there should be no cause of offense, no step that would precipitate or justify secession. He enjoined forbearance from all unnecessary exercise of political party authority. But he was very decided and determined as to what his duty was and what his action would be if the secessionists and disunionists pressed their case. He said, The disunionists did not want me to take the oath of office. I have taken it, and I intend to administer the office for the benefit of the people, in accordance with the Constitution and the law. He was especially anxious that Kentucky should not be plunged into a rebellious war, as he saw that this state would be of the utmost importance to the Union cause. Soon after the bombardment of Fort Sumter, a conference was held between the President and a number of prominent Kentuckians then in Washington, at which Lincoln expressed himself in the most earnest words. Kentucky, he declared, must not be precipitated into secession. She is the key to the situation. With her faithful to the Union, the discord in other states will come to an end. She is now in the hands of those who do not represent the people. The sentiment of her state officials must be counteracted. We must arouse the young men of the state to action for the Union. We must know what men in Kentucky have the confidence of the people, and who can be relied on for good judgment, that they may be brought to the support of the government at once. He paid a high tribute to the patriotism of the Southern men who had stood up against secession. But, said he, they are, as a rule, beyond the meridian of life, and their counsel and example do not operate quickly, if at all, on the excitable nature of young men who become inflamed by the preparations for war, and who in such a war as this will be, if it goes on, are apt to go in on the side that gives the first opportunity. The young men must not be permitted to drift away from us. I know that the men who voted against me in Kentucky will not permit this government to be swept away by any such issue as that framed by the disunionists. End of chapter 16a Recording by Bill Borst